الجزيرة بودكاست An agreement between Sudan's military and a coalition of political parties is a step towards democracy. It's been welcomed internationally, but opposition remains at home. So is this really the end of military rule in Sudan? I'm Cyril Vanier. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. From Khartoum, Alaeddin Awad Mohamed Nogud joins us. You are a surgeon. You are a member of the Sudanese Medical Consultants and Specialist Committee. Thank you for being with us. Khaloud Khair joins us as well. You're a Sudan analyst, founding director of Confluence Advisory, a think tank based in Khartoum. And from Doha is Alan Boswell. You are Horn of Africa director at the International Crisis Group. A warm welcome to all of you. The first question today Uh, to you, Alaeddin, you signed this draft agreement on behalf of the Sudanese Professional Association uh, with the military. Do you trust the military to hand over power? Okay, uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation and for the interview. All the peace and the mercy for the soul of the martyrs and the fast recovery for the injured and uh, the recovery for the lost people. Uh, no, actually, what happened from the militant uh, throughout the transitional period and in the 20th October uh, military coup, uh, it like uh, bring down all the level of the expectations of the mili- uh, for us with the militant. And what happened 25th October and afterwards, all that process also bring down much of the trust uh, between us. So the, there is a very big mistrust. Uh, actually, what we can say that the militant in 23 October, they patriate the revolution. But what we have right now is the only way politically available to regain back the civilian power or the civilian authority. We are not uh, a militant group. Mm. We are not a militant opposition. We have no weapon. And we as uh, a, a committees and uh, SPA and the revolution forces We're not looking for a military coup to regain uh, the power back for us at all. We stated that there is no military coup afterwards, and this is the only way that we can get back the civilian authority and the civilian power. So there is no other way to go over other than this. It's not a trust in the militant, but it's an agreement, a framework agreement. There will be a final agreement afterwards, and uh, they accepted that they will shift Uh, the authority and the civilian uh, role government take over uh, under many of the pressure, local pressure, uh, people pressure, international pressure, and most important that the financial crisis or the financial pressure which the government and the military government and the military rule, rule right now are facing after the 25th October, all these factors that put them under pressure to accept that civil uh, civilian role or civilians will come back to head the country. Khulud, I think the central question here, at least to start off the conversation, is can the military be trusted? Your opinion on that? Uh, the short answer is, of course, no. It was the military itself that conducted the coup a year ago. And in the year or 13 months since, there has been very little evidence that the military has been uh, changing its tune. In fact, what we've seen is consistent efforts by the military to buy time. And this agreement or this deal, which is very opaque and very Um, very sort of uh, loosely worded in some cases and very um, sort of unambiguous, or sorry, very ambiguous, could be seen as just another way 
of biding time. We've seen this in successive ways um, from almost the same day as the coup uh, took place, when the military realized that they had erred in sort of overestimating the level of which the level to which the transitional government of Prime Minister Hamdok was unpopular. I think this time their overestimation is to what extent that the pro-democracy elites are popular, which is not, um, which doesn't seem to be the case, judging by the reaction to this deal. Alan, if I can bring you into this conversation, do you think, from where you're standing, this could be the beginning of the end of military rule in Sudan? Well, I think what your uh, two previous panelists said is, is interesting, because on the one hand, um, you know, there isn't trust in the military. And I think in some mm -hmm. ways this uh, agreement doesn't really require trust in the military, and that's obviously not what it's built off of or, or wouldn't exist. Um, but also, in some ways, it appeared to be the only uh, political pathway forward uh, that wasn't um, a continued impasse. And so I think I think it's worth uh, keeping in mind just how deep and how deadlocked this political impasse has been. It's been over a year since we've seen um, a functional government uh, in Khartoum and um, more than uh, three years basically since the since the revolution that that uh, toppled al-Bashir and um, it's reaching a desperation point. Um, this was a very hard agreement to even get to this stage. It is too vague on many things. There are more negotiations to be done. It'll be a very hard deal to implement as well. But I think what we're looking at is basically politics being, um, you know, what's possible. And this is the political opening that was there right now. And it'll take a lot of work uh, to, to try to make this work. Holud, this is the deal that is on the table. Not everybody is signing it. My question would be, to those who are not signing it, what's plan B? What's the alternative? If you don't sign this, then, then what? Well, first of all, I think it's it's a fallacy that this is the best deal that could be gotten. I think had the pro-democracy elites included um, facets of the Sudanese pro-democracy movement um, from an earlier uh, point, and had this negotiation process been far more uh, far, far more transparent, I think we would have gotten um, a better deal on the table. But the reality is that. Even with, you know, um, the way that this deal has been uh, brought about and the, the euphoria that um, we're hearing is expressed by the international community in some in some quarters and also by the generals, of course, because they have the most to, to gain out of this deal. Um, what we're seeing is the real work really starts now. It's going to be very hard to implement the flowery language in this deal and, more importantly, translate it to the much more um, sort of consequential final agreement, which is meant to be um, taking place in a month's time, which of course is far too ambitious a time frame. Um, and so, really, to get that um, to, to, to materialize, especially after looking at the four main sticky issues around this transition, which are transitional justice, security sector reform, financial accountability, and what to do about the Juba peace agreement as well as, of course, appointing a prime minister and um, this, appointing the civilians with consensus um, to populate the commissions and their overall civilian governmental structure. Those are very difficult issues. The real work starts now. And given that this deal is not the best that we could have gotten, um, the pro-democracy movement is going to be very crippled in the extent to which it can really remove the generals from power and, most importantly, from the economy. You said there's something that intrigues me. You said the people this benefits the most are the generals. Why do you say that? 
Well, for a start, they're getting, they're, they are receiving a lot of international plaudits from signing this deal. And the second thing is that there's a lot of pressure right now on the FFC to to show that this deal can deliver, to mm. show that they are able to uh, address the concerns of both those who supported this deal and more importantly, the many that did not. There's very little pressure from this deal for the generals to concede any power or any assets. And so for them, they get both the international um, sort of uh, a praise as well as, of course, the, the lifting of the burden of governing Sudan, which has become quite difficult given the economic um, situation and the political strife, particularly in the conflict zones. So this actually relieves them of the burden of governing and shifts that burden squarely on the, on the shoulders of the pro-democracy actors that signed it. By the way, you said FFC, and just for everybody's benefits, that's the Forces of Freedom and Change Central Council. That is the part of the FFC that has actually signed this deal, one of the main pro-democracy groups that is in favor of this, uh, this agreement with the, with the generals. Let me go back to Al-Aideen. What's the next step now? What are the conversations like with the military on next steps to actually implement this? Because, you know, we have to... The, the, the short-term horizon is pick a prime minister pick a cabinet, get this show on the road, and put Sudan on a, on a transition on this two-year path to elections. What are the conversations with the military like at the moment about that? Okay, first of all, just before I, like answering this question, uh, one of the important things that, uh, uh, in adding with what Khouroud said, there is a, a big pressure on the militant that the coup failed. This is, this is an important fact that we have to admit and all the world admit, and all the Sudanese people, and even the coup members or the coup, the militants themselves, they admit. I think you heard what uh, General Hamati, General Borhan, they said that the coup failed, the 25th of October was the wrong decision. It was clearly said yesterday by one of the coup uh, heads. So this is the main factor that the militant is no longer able to take over or to run this country. From here is a step forward to go. The next step is that, as you said, that the FFC, uh, FFC signed is not only the FFC, by the way, uh, who signs not only the FFC, FFC with all its members and with other members out of the FFC. There is the revolution powers and there is the transition power, we can call them or we call them. So it's not the whole people is there. Right now, uh, the next step is like doing these conversations, having these meetings workshop with the other uh, revolutionary forces outside uh, the FFC, the resistance committee, uh, planning or uh, like uh, the transition justice conference. Uh, uh, Aladdin, I want to jump the, in. I want to jump in. You say that the next step... reformation or... You say the next step now is to have conversations with the other groups yeah. so that we can... so that you can bring everybody on board and then move ahead yeah. with a final agreement. So that was the question I was asking yeah. you. What are uh, these conversations yeah, like? Yeah, How do you bring them on board? Yeah, yeah, but by like this uh, direct like interview, direct conversations, and like this, uh, this workshop that we are deciding uh, to do about the security sector reformation, DDR, and the transition justice, bring the organization of the family of the martyrs to decide what type of transition justice they look for, how they are going to be performed, what the past experience that was there, for example, South Africa and Sierra Leone in Chile, how to do it, how, what about the criminal justice, what about the redistributive justice. 
all this should be taken on board that what they want this to be dealt or to be handled. That is to say, uh, the framework agreement is not closed, it's open. There much place for other uh, forces to be there, to sign, to have this dialogue about the items, especially that uh, five items that are open for the detail to be in the final agreement. Alan, I'd like your thought on this. Part of the process now that's happening is these conversations that were described by Al-Aidin between the groups that have signed the agreement and the groups that for the moment have not signed this agreement, do not want to agree to this. What choice, what alternative do they have? Well, they don't face very good options. Um, obviously, part of the pressure on the civilians to sign this deal um, was that, you know, resistance um, was becoming uh, difficult. I also just want to flag that at the moment, um, this is largely a Khartoum deal. Um, you know, Sudan has a, a lot of problems. Um, mm. Darfur, Eastern Sudan, uh, Blue Nile, uh, Southern Kordofan. This agreement makes reference to those, but honestly, the people who are signing these deals are not very uh, representative of those outside groups. Um, and former members of the armed groups who represent some uh, constituencies from that group um, uh, also are not uh, party to this and is one of the main groups that needs to be included. So, so this agreement is not plug and play. Um, there is still more work to be done. Um, and that does speak to your to your question. Um, the, uh, the Since this is the agreement now, the hope would be that there could be a more inclusive, broader process. It is unfortunate that a lot of these negotiations uh, took place uh, behind closed doors. Um, this should have been a bit more of an open process. And so hopefully uh, there could be some improvement upon it and um, you know a wider way of people both in the capital but also outside the capital uh, can be can be brought in. And I think what you know the, the degree of success of this deal will depend, I think, what happens between now and if they're able to form a government, uh, form the government, and how many more of these other groups can actually be brought on board and, and their uh, concerns and interests uh, brought on board also. So the groups that are not currently agreeing to this, the Forces of Freedom and Change Democratic Coalition, and I, by the way, I'm aware that this will be confusing to some of our viewers because you have FFC Central Council and FFC Democratic Coalition. Um, so, you know, I just want to flag that, that distinction. Um, but for those groups that are not signatories to the agreement right now, what happens if they cannot be uh, brought on board? Does the process continue towards picking a prime minister and choosing a government, moving towards elections even without them? Well, the agreement is vague on that. Um, in theory, um, one of the leverage uh, points uh, to try to get these uh, groups to be brought on board is that they will be excluded from the future government um, if they are not brought on board. Um, obviously, uh, there are risks, though, not to bring them on. Uh, the Juba peace agreement um, was signed with a number of armed groups in, in 2020, and these are groups that have not um, been brought on board. And so in theory, though, if they're not brought on board, they there are fears that they could play a, a spoiler role as well. So there's you know, there's a bit of a standoff and brinkmanship uh, going mm -hmm. on here. Um, there's also a question of if the military will actually allow this to be implemented if uh, some of these other groups, some of whom are more aligned with them, are also not brought on board. Um, the, the, the agreement does have a fair amount of ambiguity there, and, and honestly, it's, it's not clear and will be up to a lot of politicking. Uh, Khalud, why do you think the military changed course? 14 months ago, they carried out a military coup. Right. They were sharing power with civilians and they were already on this path towards uh, transition to democracy. 
And now, 14 months later, after having, by the way, killed 120 protesters, they're saying, hey, let's get back on this path. Why do they change their minds? Well, they changed their minds about uh, the potential of sharing power again with the civilians. They haven't changed their minds about the tactics they use to put down the pro-democracy movement, which are still ongoing. In fact, as we speak, um, there are several sham trials of protesters accused of killing uh, members of security forces that are still ongoing. And yesterday, as the deal was being signed, or just after, there were protests which were met with heavy um, repression tactics, including tear gas and live uh, bullets. Um, so that hasn't changed. What does seem to have changed in the past um, few weeks is that the backers, the regional backers of Generals Burhan and Hemeti in Egypt and uh, the UAE, respect, uh, respectively, they seem to have diversified their client base. So no longer are they just um, backing military actors in Sudan. They seem to be backing also um, civilian actors. We saw the return of the head of the original, uh, one of the older parties in Sudan, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, original bloc. And his arrival in Sudan signaled um, this shift away from merely supporting those in khaki to um, a broader client base, including civilians. And this really paved the way for this deal to become a lot more concretized um, which hadn't been very much the case until then. But as Alan noted, there are still a lot of ambiguous areas um, that need to be sort of worked on. And I think that ambiguity is by design. It allows the generals a lot of leeway um, as to the extent to which they will be conceding both economic and political power. By the way, there's something we've only tangentially mentioned so far, and it's the economy. Part of the discontent on the streets is about the cost of living. Inflation is a worldwide problem, but the figures in Sudan give an indication of how hard it is for people to keep up with rising prices. Uh, according to Sudan's Central Bureau of Statistics, headline inflation averaged 359% in 2021. That's compared with 163% in 2020. A few more numbers. Core inflation, that includes volatile items such as food, soared to 443% in December last year. It has eased somewhat since then, standing at around 103% in October, partly due to the currency stabilizing, but inflation levels still very high compared to many other countries. LAD, my question following up on those numbers would be, how much does the economy feature into everybody's thinking around this, that perhaps we need stability because the economy has just tanked since the international community pulled subsidies, inflation has skyrocketed, and we all need to put an end to this situation, if only for the sake of the economy. Yeah, as I said, I stated before that uh, one of the major important pressure on the, on the coup authority is that this financial pressure. Uh, this financial failure, they, they actually, they failed to, to run the country financially. There's a very big, huge pressure, like, on the government, the military government, the military coup members, on the people. They increased the, the price of the fuel uh, four times. Uh, they increased the taxes so much, like, more than 200%. So uh, there is a lot of strikes uh, between the doctors, between the teachers. Teachers are right now in strike, family doctors right, right now in strikes. So the, this is big pressure on the, on the military government after the coup and after holding all the, 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 the international aid and the donations for the country, they failed. They, ha they failed to have a good uh, budget, a good financial budget. Uh, as the, the, the military finance uh, minister, 
He said that we will depend our, our, uh, on our own uh, income. Uh, even their own income is from the pocket of the, of the civilian, of the pocket of the people. They, they have no, like, uh, there are no any project to bring them money. There is no international aid. There is no international donations. All the investment that were open in the transitional time and transitional government were closed. All these doors closed. The international community door for Sudan mm. was closed after it were, was open to the extreme. Uh, all this pressure, they, 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 all this pressure, these factors, right. actually it allows that definite failure of the coup. So they cannot, go, they will go nowhere. Even the country that supported them in the beginning, they stopped supporting them. Actually, because that they, they realized that this coup is a Muslim Brotherhood coup. All the previous regime, Omar al-Bashir regime people, they came back to the show. So uh, it was uh, difficult for these countries that supported the coup in the beginning to continue supporting them. So that's one of the big factors that put this uh, mm. uh, military coup to failure and the end of the coup. And um, militants decided they, they, they didn't agree to bring back the power or the authority to the civilians. They are under pressure to do this. By, we have to give the right nomenclature for it. They are under pressure. They are enforced to do this. All right, well, the next chapter remains to be written in Sudan. This is still very much a developing story, but I'd like to thank all of you, thank all our guests for helping us understand where Sudan is at this particular moment in time. Thank you, Alaydin Awad, Mohamed Nogud, Khulud Khair, and Alan Boswell. And that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Osama Aloni, Um Kulsum Sharif, Laura Hamidi, Aisaba Mirzaeva, and Jemma Harris. Studio sound was by Suraj Shankar, and the program was edited by Hatem Sheba, Linen Guyen, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.